as they're heading back, uh, interesting that, uh, that Andy would mention Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes, I might see wonderful things from your law or from your instruction. Um, that, that verse, when uh, Chris and I were, before we moved back down to Georgia, we were members at a, uh, a church, Belcroft Bible Church, where a man by the name of Jim Shoopy uh, was the pastor. Fantastic, fantastic uh, man of God, knew the word, just, it, it seemed like it didn't matter where he was in scripture, he could, he could communicate and teach it, and I just felt like he, he used to teach at the Bible college, I never had him for a class, I think my parents did actually when they were at the Bible college, and I remember sitting in the, uh, in the sanctuary Sunday after Sunday, and it was, it was like sitting in a master's class, someone who was just communicating God's word straightforward. And I'll never forget, there was one day when, uh, when he mentioned in the course of a sermon that Psalm 119.18 was, was a verse that he prayed every time he went to, to study scripture. And the impression that that made on me was such that I thought, wait, wait a minute, you, you ask for God to open your eyes? I, I thought it just came to you, Right? I just thought this guy was just a cut above everyone else, and this was just, this just happened, right? It was just natural to him. And it had such an impression on me that I said, that's it. I want that too. So Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes, Lord, that I might see wonderful things from your word, right? It's a realization that even when we come to Scripture, the plight that we're in it's such that if God does not give us the ability to see, we will not see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in Scripture. Anytime we get something from Scripture, it's a gracious act. Having said that, turn to Genesis chapter 17. Let me try to tell you up front what, I'm, what I'd like to do in this passage today, and then hopefully that will uh, hold me accountable to actually do what I'm telling you I'm going to do, rather than go off on some rabbit trail or hair, harebrained idea. And then you can let me know afterwards whether or not I failed miserably or not. Do it gently, though, okay? All right. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Genesis 17. We're going to read it in just a minute. And we'll work our way through it. But let me tell you up front how we're going to handle this so that even as we read it, you can sort of be looking and thinking through the passage along these lines. I think that if, if I were to try to sum up Genesis 17 it, just in a, in a simple sentence, this is not in any way inspired, but if I were going to make an attempt, I would try to sum up the message of Genesis 17 something like this. By His covenant, God calls His people to live in obedience. By His covenant, covenant comes first, God calls His people to live in obedience. All right, so there are three things then that I'm going to try to draw our attention to as we work our way through the passage. Number one, the stipulation of obedience. In other words, God actually calls his people to obey. If you are part of God's covenant, if you count yourself as one of His people, 
there is a stipulation that you obey. Number two, after the stipulation of obedience, the sign of circumcision, which is actually going to be the act of obedience that Abraham is called to. So the stipulation of obedience, the sign of circumcision. And then number three, when we transition to communion, simple obedience. So the stipulation of obedience, the sign of circumcision, and then simple obedience. Follow with me as I read Genesis 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, he was 86 at the end of chapter 16. We've now fast-forwarded, what would that be, 13 years? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you will be circumcised. And you will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. 
He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Would you so work in our hearts and minds that we are compelled by your glory and by your worth, not to mention the infinite value of your promises, to walk after you, to walk before you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 ought to be held in connection with each other because of the way that they play off of each other. Genesis 15 is crucial to understanding, I think correctly, or with the proper perspective, what's happening in Genesis 17. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. Let me, let me give you at least one of the significant ways in which Genesis 15 and 17 are contrasted, but because of that contrast, the way that they complement one another. In Genesis 15, the emphasis is on the covenant that God is making with Abram, Abraham, he becomes in chapter 17. In chapter 15, the covenant as it's depicted to us, the reader, is depicted as a free unilateral covenant that God makes with Abraham. In other words, when you go back and when you read chapter 15, all you read in chapter 15 is what God says that He will do for Abraham. There is nothing that Abraham needs to do for God as part of the covenant. God just says, this is what I am promising, this is what I'm going to do, and as a way to affirm the unilateral nature of that covenant, after Abram cuts the animals in half, God walks through the animal parts, that historic ancient covenant-cutting ceremony, as a way to say, if this covenant that I'm making with you, Abram, is not fulfilled, may I meet the same end that these animals have met. May I be destroyed. It's all on God. Chapter 17 comes along, though, and right up front, we have a stipulation that's placed on Abraham. Abraham. I'm just going to say Abraham, otherwise I'm going to be tripping over myself trying to remember what verse Abram goes to Abraham. Is that okay? Okay, Abraham. Chapter 17, God comes to Abraham, and He says, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant with you. Do you hear that? A little bit of tension now. In chapter 15, it was just, Abraham, I'm going to do it. Chapter 17 now, what is God doing? Is He sneaking in a condition? 
Did he trick Abraham into thinking that this covenant that I'm entering into with you was free? It was all about me, but now that I've got you, I'm going to show you the fine print. You actually have to obey me. I don't think that's what's happening in Genesis 17. I don't think God is sinister. I don't think that God is playing a trick on Abraham. I don't think that he's being underhanded. I do think, though, that we ought to take very seriously the fact that God ties Abraham's obedience to the future fulfillment of the covenant. Now, let me say up front, we're going to spend probably the majority of our time just on the first part of chapter 17 because it is so crucial to get this balance right. If you came to Genesis 17 and if you read the opening verses, it would be understandable to process through or to think along these lines. Okay, verse 1. Abraham is given a command, walk before me and be blameless. Second statement is, I will establish my covenant between me and you. So I read that and I say, well, the conclusion then is that if Abram doesn't obey, if he doesn't walk before God, if he isn't blameless, then God is not going to fulfill the covenant. Do you hear that? And you know what that does then? That puts a lot of pressure on Abraham, doesn't it? If God came to you and said, the only way that you're going to get what I've promised you is if you walk before me and are blameless all the days of your life, you think that would weigh on you a little bit? I would just go ahead and ask for the check. I'm out. That's never going to happen. So we can come to 17, 1 and 2, and we can work with the understanding or be given the impression that what God is doing here is that He's basically coming to Abraham after the fact and saying, okay, Abraham, in order for this covenant to work, you've got your part that you've got to play, and I've got my part that I'm going to play. You see to it that you do your end, and then I'll do my end, which means, Abraham, if this thing is going to work, you better uphold your end of the deal. That doesn't sound like a free gift. That doesn't sound gracious. Let me tell you, though, why I don't think that God commanding Abraham to walk before him blamelessly, why I don't think that God is intending for Abraham or us, for that matter, to now view Abraham as a 50-50 partner with God in this covenant venture. Number one, because God has already cut the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. In other words, God can't make a covenant with Abram in chapter 15 and then later go back and change the conditions of that covenant after the fact. That's not the way a covenant works. So because God has already entered into covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, and he has done so freely and in such a way that he says, all of this, Abraham, rests on me, we ought to be very careful before we start to think, oh, well, now in chapter 17, now it depends in some way on Abraham. That's, that's not what's going on. So number one, 
God has already entered into a covenant with Abraham, a free unilateral covenant in chapter 15. He is not changing the terms after the fact. Number two, the significance of Abram becoming Abraham. Notice, why is it that Abram gets a name change? Why does God do that for him? You know it. It's, it's not tricky. Why is his name, why does his name go from Abram to Abraham? Because God says, I'm going to make you the father of many people, many nations. In other words, even when God says, walk before me and be blameless, He goes and He changes Abram's identity and He says up front, I'm still going to do all of this that I've promised you to do. God is already confirming the fact that all of these promises are going to be made good. He changes Abram's name to reflect that. Number three, another reason why we shouldn't expect or shouldn't think that Abram is now being asked to be a 50-50 partner with God in this covenant relationship is because in verses 7 and 8, we find out for the first time that the ultimate goal in this covenant relationship is what God says down in verse 7 at the very end, that He is going to make you the father of many nations. He's going to give you many descendants. He's going to establish an everlasting covenant, notice, end of verse 7, to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, I will be their God, talking about his descendants. Do you hear that? In other words, the reason that God has entered into covenant with Abraham, the reason that he is going to give him many descendants is so that God can have a people for himself, so that the people that God makes covenant with can get God as their reward. Now, I don't care how obedient Abraham or you or I are in our life, there is no amount of finite obedience that can make us 50-50 partners when the reward is an infinite God. Abraham is not now standing on equal footing with God. Through this covenant, he's going to get God. What in the world would Abraham have to offer back in return for that? Number four, even with the stipulation that Abraham walk before the Lord and be blameless, in other words, even with the stipulation that Abraham obey, it is significant that nine times in this chapter, God refers to this covenant as my covenant, not our covenant, because you have your part and I have mine. He still over and over and over again refers to my covenant. Abraham, you're going to obey, but don't you think that your obedience means that this covenant is yours in the sense that you create it, that you sustain it, that you perpetuate it? This is my covenant. It always has been. It always will be. And number five, 
This is where the fun, nerdy stuff comes in. The Hebrew construction that you have in verses 1 and 2 is such that the command that you have in verse 1, to walk before me and be blameless, is connected with the next statement, I will establish my covenant with you, in such a way that, that the command is showing, is indicating that it is a means to an end. In other words, the statement, I will establish my covenant with you, that is the purpose, that is the intent to which Abraham's obedience will serve. Let me, let me see if I, if I can get it across this way. If I were to go to my kids and I were to say, get in the car and I will get you some donuts, What is the weightiest part of that statement for my children? Donuts. In fact, the command that's given up front, go get in the car, is stated so that the donuts can be had. Do you see that? The, the command is important, don't get me wrong, if they don't get in the car, they will not go to get donuts. The command is necessary. If you're going to enjoy this reward, you have to get in the car. But getting in the car in and of itself is not where the focus is. The focus is on the promised reward. It would be a strange thing for my kids to hear me say, get in the car and I will give you donuts, and for them to say, huh, well, I guess dad really needs our help. If this is going to work, dad really needs a lot of assistance from us. Or for the kids to hear the command, get in the car, and to find that command burdensome to them. What do you mean we have to get in the car? I don't want to get in the car. I tell you what, Dad, why don't you just go get donuts and you bring it back to me? Do you, do you see how, how this works? The command itself is necessary, it's essential, but it's not the main point. The command is there to get to the main point, which is the promise, which is the reward, which is the fulfillment. Now, having said that, here is why, let's just keep it with Abraham for a minute. Here is why obedience is crucial for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In chapter 17, one of the things that comes through loud and clear is the promise of many descendants. I'm going to give you many people. Nations, kings will come from you. Abraham looks around and he says, okay, here is God's promise, many descendants. What do I have to work with in order to make this happen? Ishmael. The Lord says, Abraham, Sarah is going to give birth to a son. Abraham laughs. No, 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 Lord. We've already taken care of that. Ishmael is right here. No, Abraham. Sarah is going to be the mother of the heir to the promises. It is through Sarah's son, Isaac, that your descendants will be named. 
Now, does Abraham have to obey in order for this promise to be fulfilled? How many minors do we have in the room? Okay, parents, I apologize if this puts you in an awkward situation. If God's promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled, you understand Abraham has to act in accordance with the promise. You, you reading me? Abraham's obedience is crucial, essential to the fulfillment of the promise. But now let me ask you this question. As crucial and essential as Abraham's obedience is to the promise being fulfilled, the divine promise that God has given, will Abraham's obedience actually do the work to fulfill that promise? Right, now you go, yes, no. Let's ask it this way. Abraham's obedience in and of itself Will it change the reality that he is in right now, that he is about to be a 100-year-old man married to a 90-year-old woman who has been barren her entire life and who is long past the time for childbearing? Is his obedience going to change any of that? No. So why be obedient? He wants God's blessing. This is how the blessing is going to happen. So you know what Abraham has to do? Abraham has to act in obedience in light of the promise of God, knowing that his act, that his work, has no effective power in it, and yet at the same time say, but my act of obedience will be effective because of God who is working in me. So God calls us to be holy. Peter picks up on Old Testament language and says, when God told the Israelites, you shall be holy because I am holy, Peter says that applies to us as God's new covenant people. Okay, Edgewood. Okay, Highland. You go obey that command. You go be holy. Is that a command that is essential for you to obey? It is. Let's ask the next question. Is there any chance at all that your obedience, your act of holiness, is actually going to make you holy? Do you have the ability to do that? Of course not. So why do it? Why be holy? Why be patient? Why be kind? You're not patient. You're not kind. Why fight against lust? Why fight against self-centeredness? Why do the obedient thing that God has called me to do when I can't make myself what He says I need to be? Here's why. Because even though my act of obedience cannot do a miraculous work, God can.
And my act of obedience, your act of obedience, is an essential component to God working out all of his good promises. When you do the patient thing, God is making you patient. When you do the kind act, God is making you kind. You're not doing that. God is doing that. But you're doing it while God does it in you. So Paul says crazy things in Philippians. Like, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You better get to it. You got a lot of work to make up. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because this whole thing is going to come crashing down unless you get to it. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to work and to will His good pleasure. Both the desire to work and the ability to work is something that God gives you, and He says, you live this out, and I'll take care of all the details. I'll take care of all the fulfillment. I will do what I said that I will do. You just walk before me and be blameless, be whole and be complete. I'll take care of it. There has to be a recognition for people who claim to be part of the covenant people of God that entering into covenant relationship with God is not a passive life. It is not a hopeless life. It also is not a life that we enter into where through Christ we get the ticket to get in through the gate and then everything else depends on us to finish out the work. God calls Abram, Abraham to obedience, and God causes Abraham's obedience to be fruitful. That is what He does in you and me. He calls us to obey, and He causes our obedience to be fruitful. So Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened down. That sounds like a command, doesn't it? That sounds like something that you and I have to do. And what does he say after that? And I will give you rest. Is the command to come to Christ essential to get the rest? Of course it is. There's nowhere else you're going to find rest, but find it with Christ. 
But it's not the obedient act in and of itself that creates this rest. It's the rest that God in Christ gives to you through your act of obedience. God is still the author and the perfecter of our faith. When we're told in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. That sounds like a command, does it not? Don't be anxious. You ever been anxious? You ever told yourself, don't be anxious when you're anxious? So what is, what is Paul doing then? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. There's the command. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. There's the reward. You want peace? You've got to set the anxiety and the anxiousness aside as you take it to the Lord. You've got to leave it with Him. So there is, even in the free covenant that God has cut with Abraham, there is the stipulation that he obey, but not in such a way that it is Abraham's obedience that is going to make this covenant effective or fruitful. Rather, it is through his obedience that God is going to be working to accomplish every good thing that he said he would do. So, number two, that gets us to the sign of circumcision. Abraham, here's the way that this is going to work. As a way to visibly show or indicate that you and I are connected permanently, you are going to take this sign on yourself you're going to be circumcised. And not just you, Abraham, but anyone else who is connected to you and to the promises that you're carrying, if they want to be part of that, they have to take on this covenant sign as well. All of the men in your family and household, whether born to you or working for you or not, if they want to be part of the covenant promises, they need the sign of the covenant. They need to be circumcised. It's an odd thing. Why not a tattoo? A secret covenant handshake that only the covenant community would know. There are probably a couple things that you could say as to why circumcision is going to be the sign of the covenant. And while I wouldn't make this a hill to die on, I would say that I think this is probably the best explanation for it. I think the reason that God is promising many descendants to Abraham, promising him that nations and kings will come from him, and it will start with Sarah. I think the sign of circumcision is appropriate because it will be a permanent mark on the procreative instrument that perpetually reminds Abraham and his descendants the only reason that we exist is because God has given us life. Amen. 
Abraham, you will be the father of Isaac, but do not think, Abraham, that it's through your hard work that Isaac will be fathered. I did that. And Abraham, I want you and I want Isaac and everyone who comes from that line to bear that mark so that they know with every passing generation that the reason that we are sustained and kept as a covenant community is because God is the one who continues to give and sustain life. We walk in obedience, but God secures the promises. So God says about the sign of circumcision that my covenant will be in your flesh. In other words, this covenant is going to mark you in such a way, this is now who you are. But even this is not ultimately what God is driving at. A mark on the body. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verses 14 through 16. Listen to what God says to Abraham's descendants who are now a nation of people. Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 through 16. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Verse 16, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Abraham, you're going to put this covenant sign on your body. You're going to carry it the rest of your life. Your sons are going to be given this mark as an infant. They will carry it for the rest of their lives. But Abraham, understand, it is not a mere physical people that I am after. I'm after their hearts. And the fact of the matter is that you can do all the cutting and the marking that you want and yet never get deep enough to have your, your heart cut and marked by God. God wants people who have hearts that are marked by Him. You, you realize this is both sobering and encouraging at the same time. It's sobering because if what God is really after is not a physical mark, but a mark on the heart, a spiritual mark, that is easily hidden. No one can see my heart. I could be a pretender, an imposter, and none of you would know it. My, my heart could be just as dead and cold as the next guy out on the street. 
I could even be fooling myself. It's also sobering because I can't circumcise my own heart. That is sobering. Here's the encouragement. Here's the joy. That because circumcision of the heart is what God is after, because He has promised to make a new people for Himself, people whose hearts will belong to Him, God says, I will do that work that they can't do. I will mark their heart as belonging to me. And because God is the one who does that work, who marks your heart for him, there is no way that you can reverse that. He cuts your heart in conviction. That is the kindness of God. He marks your heart in such a way that you find all of these other things no longer satisfying. You feel compelled to live an insane life that your friends and your family don't understand. That is a mark of kindness. God has cut on your heart and claimed it as His. And so the passage that we read from today in Colossians 2 says that very thing. You were circumcised with a circumcision not made by hand. God did it. And because God is the one who marks us out as his people, we can rest secure knowing that there is no way that that mark can be undone knowing that because he is the one who cuts away the dead flesh of my heart and gives me a new heart, it will be permanent. It will last. And all of the things that my heart now want to do, even if it's faint, even if it's just the bare flicker of an inclination to obey or to be holy, because that comes as a mark from God, God says, even the barest flicker of inclination coming from your heart that I have marked will be made fruitful when you walk in obedience before me. He will not leave us to wallow in our sin. He will not leave us to walk through life perpetually immature. He will not leave us to ourself. And that is something to be glad for. Point number three, the stipulation of obedience, the sign of circumcision, and then simple obedience. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I'm still in Genesis 17. Abraham is given the command to take on this covenant sign, to walk before the Lord blameless, take the covenant sign. At the end of the chapter, how does Abraham respond? He took himself, he took Ishmael, he took all the men of his house, and he circumcised them 
When? That very day. God calls Abraham to obey in the immediate context of chapter 17. The only act of obedience that God has commanded Abraham to carry out is circumcision. So you know what Abraham does not have to do? He does not have to sit there and think long and hard about what it is that God would have him do. He's already told him what to do. Okay, so I'll do this thing that God has commanded me to do, and then I'll trust that the next thing that God would have me do will be made evident, and I'll do that next thing, and the thing after that, and the thing after that. Here's the beauty of God's kindness and grace to weak, mixed-up people like us. You realize that when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to communion, the reason that we do this is because we were commanded to do it. When God says to us, says to Edgewood, says to Highland, walk before me and be blameless, he counts this as part of that obedient walk. So simple. But it's valuable to him because it shows a heart of obedience. This is what God has called us to do. This is what Christ, our Lord, has said we ought to do in remembrance of him. Let's do it. This is what God has told us to do when we enter into the covenant community. We take the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. I'm part of God's covenant people. What does my Lord say to his servant? He says, be baptized. I'll be baptized. So simple. And yet that counts for us. That counts as something that God is going to reward us for. This So as we come to this, this time in which we're participating, sharing in communion together, do keep in mind that, yes, sometimes obedience will be difficult. Sometimes it will be hard. Sometimes it will be painful. Sometimes it will be costly. But the road to those costly, painful acts of obedience... Those steps are laid far in advance with very simple, basic acts of obedience that happen every single day. You got to trust that just like Abraham is called to obey in circumcision right now, that God in that act is preparing him for a greater act of obedience that's going to come some five chapters later. Abraham's not ready for the test he's going to get in chapter 22. He just needs to do the obedience now. You do the obedience that God is calling you to do now, including taking from the Lord's table if you belong to his covenant people and trust that as you walk in faith and obedience that God will be working through your obedience to accomplish his work. Men, if you'll come down to the front to help distribute the elements... As the men are making their way back up with the plates, they'll be making available to you a little packet in these COVID communion days.
There's a very thin layer on top that you peel back first that will give you access to the wafer and then the purple foil. Men, you can go ahead and begin to distribute. The purple foil you would peel back to be able to get to the drink. You're free to open that, but we would just ask you don't partake just yet until we can all do it together. Baptism is the covenant sign for new covenant members. The Lord's table is the covenant meal, the fellowship that we enjoy having been brought into fellowship with one another through our union with Christ. We read a little bit earlier Deuteronomy chapter 10 where God tells his people to circumcise their hearts. And of course, that's an impossible task. Towards the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, God tells them ahead of time, you're going to fail miserably because of your sin. I'm going to discipline you because of your sin, ultimately because your heart is not with me. But listen to what he says in that same chapter. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, after having said in chapter 10, you circumcise your heart. He comes to, towards the end of Deuteronomy and he says this, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our hearts have been cut and marked and made his because Christ was cut and bled in our place. So, if you'll take the wafer and partake, recalling that he was beaten and bruised so that you could be made whole. And if you'll take the cup and partake, remembering that he was cut, that he was made bloody, so that your heart could be cut and made his. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how good and kind and gracious you are to command us to obey and then to give us what you command. Thank you that it is not through our works that we are saved. That would never happen. Thank you that it's not by our works that we're kept in this saving grace. Thank you that you have done that work for us through the obedience of Jesus Christ. Thank you that that obedience is given to us, counted for us, because of your covenant promises. But now, Father, we do ask that you would continue to show yourself faithful to us by changing us and transforming us into covenant, obedient people so that we look different and sound different and act different from the people around us, that we would be that strange and peculiar people that have been set apart for the Lord. Help us to walk by faith and obedience, knowing that you are trustworthy and that you will cause every act of obedience according to your will to be fruitful and to work toward our reward. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And as we close, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're just going to close out with the same song, Speak, O Lord, but we're only going to sing the second verse, which speaks of teaching us, Lord, full obedience. Let's worship together. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy. Let their truth prevail.
God bless you. You're dismissed.